Hello, and welcome to episode seven of the Tennis Abstract podcast, a weekly podcast with me, Jeff Sackman, and my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Every week, we try to cover all of the tennis issues of the day with a decidedly analytical bent. So if you're not into tennis analytics, uh, we don't really know how you found us, but maybe you should give it a try. There's a lot to talk about in the last week of tennis and upcoming in Rome, but let's start with last week's results in Madrid. I am most excited to talk about the women's draw in Madrid because my favorite player, Simona Halep, came through. She defended her title. She had a really hard-fought final against Kristina Mladenovic yesterday. Not yesterday, it was Saturday now. We're recording this on Monday, by the way, with some Rome action going on. So Simona managed to defend her title, she had a couple really easy matches. She had a couple really challenging matches, the Mladenovic final as well as a, a round of 32 match against Roberta Vinci. Um, but it really changes the complexion of the season for Simona, I think. She was really far down in the race. She struggled a lot at some events earlier in the season, and now she's up to number eight in the race. And Carl, you and I have talked quite a bit the last few weeks about how much the field is up for grabs on, on clay. And Simona is one of the few players who I think could could become a, a maybe not dominant, dominant is too strong, but a, a top player in the field on clay. So based on what we saw this past week, Carl, is there, is there anyone else you think could we should expect to see challenging Simona as the presumptive number one in Rome this week and moving forward to Roland Garros? Well, I think we should start logically with the other finalists. Mladenovic has been good on hard courts and clay this year and really fought hard in that final. And I think for much of the final was outplaying Simona, although Simona really pulled away in the end in the third set. So, yeah, I, I'm, I've been really impressed with her all season. And it, she's not coming out of nowhere by any means. People have seen her for a long time as a potential future top five or number one player. I think Sharapova has probably fallen a little in, in both of our estimations after she lost a pretty exciting and well-played match to Eugenie Bouchard that both of us wrote off a little dismissively last week because Bouchard had just done so little recently. But she beat Sharapova, beat Kerber, who retired five love down in the second set, having lost the first. So she had a pretty good run too, uh, but you know, not ready to put Bouchard up there quite yet. And, and Kerber continues to not really seem like much of a factor on any surface. Yeah, it's it, it, Kerber. Is, I'm not sure what this, her status is with injury. She's in the she's in the draw in Rome, so presumably she expects to be able to compete this week. So hopefully nothing too bad. And Bouchard really was a big surprise there. And even even those people who are optimistic about about Jeannie's game these days, I don't think we're figuring her to be a huge factor on clay. She's never done a lot on clay, I believe. So it's tough to know how much of that win over Kerber was due to Kerber's injury. She did win the first set uh, before Kerber started looking a lot worse. But um, Sharapova certainly remains a factor, but as you point out, that that really does change our estimate of her. Uh, I don't want to read too much into that because it is just one match. She is still rusty. And as we point out, there's 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 a lot of uh, a lot of uncertainty in the draw. But it'll be interesting to see how much more we can figure out from watching the Rome draw this week, because the the top of the Rome draw is absolutely packed. 
Uh, Simona is, strangely enough, she fell down to being seated sixth at the, the even though she, basically because her, her Madrid points fell off before she got them back. So she fell down to number eight in the rankings, and then she's back up to number four this week. But she's out of the top four in the seedings, which means she's in the same quarter as Angelique Kerber. But also in that quarter is just a huge number of threats. Right right now, as we're recording this, um, Mirjana Lucic is playing Lucy Safarova, two, two threats in that section of the draw. Um, Anastasia Sevastova, who was a semifinalist last week in Madrid, she's in there. Laura Ziegemund, who beat Halep in Stuttgart, um, she will be Halep's first match, the second round, but Halep's first match. So Sharapova's in there too, so we have Kerber, Sharapova, Sevastova, Ziegemund, Halep, all in one quarter, and that's a, a lot of the names that we're talking about, Carl, as, as potential, well, before we saw the draw, potential Rome finalists, Obviously, we can only have one of those here. Um, but who who else do you see be, beyond those players? Like, do do you think someone like Garbine Muguruza, who's who's struggled so far this year on clay, do you think she could be someone to um, maybe take out Mladenovic? I just see their set for a, a, a round of sixteen clash. So, so do you think that that Mladenovic is playing so well that we we would favor her over someone like a, a reigning French Open champion and Muguruza? You know, there's the category reigning French Open champion, and then there's Muguruza and, and her results so far this year, and especially on clay. I think the average reigning French Open champion in recent years has been Serena Williams, Sharapova, a threat on every surface. And then we have Muguruza, who just hasn't won, I think, on the surface this year. And it's it's inexplicable, or at least it's unexplained so far uh, by injury or any other obvious factor. So... While I don't want to too quickly update my view of her based on just recent results, I would favor Mladenovic for sure. Uh, I think Pliskova is interesting too. You know, she's not at her best on clay, but she's number one in the race. As she had to remind a reporter in Rome this week who asked about her disappointing results so far. Uh, So I wouldn't count her out. I guess in a similar vein, Kanta, even though she hasn't done much on clay this year, could beat anyone probably on any surface just with her aggressive game like Pliskova. But, but yeah, certainly the balance of the threats that we've been thinking about are in that one quarter of the draw. Uh, could I ask you two Simona questions before you also share your, the threats you see lurking? Yeah, fire away. Okay, so first, I'm interested in what you think about the the weird calendar this year. It seems like in general, events are one week later and points drop off a week before the event, which can create pretty volatile rankings and situations where a player has a great result and drops in the seeding because the seeding is set before the previous week's results are set. It even determines... Um, it, 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 um, it, just, it just seems strange. Um, the 52-week thing is arbitrary anyway, but there is at least usually some internal logic that you're still getting the credit from the previous season. But I'm answering my own question. What do you think? Um, well, there's some positives and negatives there. For me, the fundamental issue is that the 52-week ranking, as you say, is arbitrary. So the, the idea that a, a tournament that you played 51 weeks ago is 100% relevant to your current ability and a tournament you played 53 weeks ago is 0% relevant, that always strikes me as just insane. So whenever I've tried to build rating systems, I've 
I've tried to avoid that as much as possible. Like in, in the first system I built, I had a, a two-year cutoff, but rather than having a hard cutoff, there was, there was a weight placed on every result. So the, the results two years ago were weighted about 25% as much as a result last week. A result one year ago was rated about 50% as much, which was considerably more predictive than, than the current way of doing things. On the other hand, I'm, I'm not as concerned as what, what you're suggesting about the sort of chaos of having, having rankings like Simona's that are bouncing up and down because you have this one tournament where she's defended her title, her ranking falls one week because the points come off, it goes back up the next week. In a way, I, I almost like that because it introduces a little bit of randomness into the seedings. One thing I really don't like about the, the, the structure of tennis in general is the seedings do give give players so much of a leg up. If you're, if you're someone in the top 16, just having that number 14 or number 15 seeding helps you stay there just by virtue of getting easier, uh, easier opponents in early rounds. And I know a lot of people think you deserve it, you've earned it. Well, we, we can argue over, over how, what you want to call that, but in terms of, of giving chances to players to get the best players in the final rounds of tournaments, give young players a chance to compete, um, I don't think that's ideal. So while personally I, I, I don't like the fact that Simona fell out of the top four and has this brutal quarter this week, I do le- like the idea that in general there are going to be, such, be situations where players don't have a consistent advantage from week to week. Yeah, those are all good points. And really with the status of the WTA this year where the current ranking, if not the the race ranking in the in the points so far this year, the current ranking doesn't seem to reflect that much about current ability. So what makes Simona's draw brutal is not so much that Kerber is there, uh, which, you know, she wouldn't be if Simona was in the top four. It's It's about all the other players whose rankings don't really reflect what we at least think are their threat levels on clay. I, I do like the the idea, though, that the, at the same tournament, your result from the previous year counts and that the defending champ gets gets that boost. Um, and, and I think it's, some, it's an open question. I think it's one you've studied a little bit, but it does seem like certain players do better at certain events, and it kind of is their event. So it does seem a little weird to me to not get that reward at that next at the event that next year when they've been getting it for the intervening 51 weeks. But... Well, it, it makes it makes for an interesting natural experiment, I think, and I, I'm not sure whether there's enough data to run this, and I, I don't know whether there's actually an effect there, but you mentioned that some players seem to, to own certain tournaments, like Philip Kohlschreiber in Munich, of all things, and you, you can think of, a, of several other examples where a player who's not necessarily the, the number one seed every year is, is really successful at a certain tournament, but... I've always wondered about the the psychological aspect of just of defending your points and how much that that matters, how how much that plays a mental factor for players. Because there are some interesting results in psychology, not related to sports, that people value things more that if they already own them, as opposed to things that they don't yet own or considering purchasing or, or might receive or something like that. So it, it seems like a, a pretty a, a pretty good analogy of points you're defending versus points you'd like to add to your ranking. Obviously, you're going to try to win every match. You're going to try to win those ranking points, but maybe you try a little bit harder if you know that 250 points are coming off of your score from from last year. And I, I meant to talk about that a little bit a few weeks ago when Luca Pui sort of defended a title. I'm doing air quotes and, and physically right now, but I realize it's a podcast, so that doesn't mean anything to our listeners. 
Um, but he had won, he had reached the final, rather, in Bucharest last year, and then the Bucharest tournament went away. This year, the tournament was in Budapest, and he won that tournament. Neither results are something you would expect. I, I, he might have been the top seed in Budapest, but not an overwhelming favorite. But he did manage to defend the points. And there aren't that many situations where that happens, where where you're essentially defending your points at a different event. But that's the that's the experiment that I think would be interesting, would be to isolate those instances where players are defending their points, but not necessarily in the same atmosphere they were. Because there is clearly some advantage to some players liking either the, the home cooking or the atmosphere or the particular surface or the particular balls or any number of factors that could help someone like Simona to win a tournament like Madrid that might be really well suited to her game. But if there if there is a psychological factor, we should see that even if it's at a, a different event, like in the case of Pui having to defend his points at a different event, or in the case of the WTA this year where you might be defending points from the previous week, the previous year. So you're not necessarily defending Madrid points the week of Madrid. Yeah, it's all very interesting. Um my other Halep question. So she's worked quite a bit with Darren Cahill, who's a coach as well as a uh, commentator for ESPN. And I think she credited some of her success last week to them having a rift and then coming back together in a coaching relationship. Uh, we talked recently about how important coaching is in the context of Djokovic. Do you, do you think that there's any meaning to that? Do you think people just kind of, point to something as, as the reason because it's proximate to, to an event as opposed to a real real effect? I don't know. It's such a tough question, and I don't even really know how to begin studying it without, without trying to collect just a huge amount of anecdotal data. It's, it's, I think most fans like Darren Cahill. He seems like a, a really bright guy, and he has a great track record, and there does seem to be some anecdotal evidence piling up that Simona plays better with him around. So it's tempting. I I have to hesitate before I, I really endorse any of you like that because I I I don't know, I have a I have a hard time seeing it. I it, it's easier to, to make that kind of connection on the WTA tour because you do have on court coaching and there are times where especially when you can hear the conversation, you have Cahill come down and say you know, you use this tactic and then you can see her employing it. Or you can you can think you're seeing her confidence be boosted shortly thereafter. But I don't know. I think so so much of coaching is just keeping a player a little bit more focused on what they already knew they should be focused on, making them a little more confident, making them a little bit more comfortable. And so so much of that is almost impossible to quantify that I tend to, to shy away from it. So I mean, if I have to, if I have to say something a little more concrete than that, it it would be to just go with what Simona thinks is happening. That if if she feels better with him around, then okay, great. I don't think there's any negatives in feeling more confident on court or feeling like you have someone giving you good advice. So I guess I would, yeah, I would I would defer to what the player says about their their coaching arrangement. Yeah, I mean, we have a little bit of evidence based on sort of in a short-term micro way in terms of when WTA players at WTA events get on-court coaching visits. Uh, I don't know if anyone records that in a way systematic enough to see what immediate effect that has, but that that's really a different question anyway from what the more macro effect it is because I think 
the biggest role coaches play even with that option is by far not happening during matches. Um, by the way, I, I feel some regret about our discussion about Djokovic and super coaches. We'll get back to the, the women's game in a second, but while we're talking about coaching, I don't think either of us mentioned any women as candidates for his coach and men have been coaching women for a long time. And, uh, Andy Murray had, has had some success, uh, with Maresmo as a coach and the main draw podcast actually mentioned a few interesting candidates. I mean, they were just speculating entirely, but so were we. I like the idea, especially of Lee Na as Djokovic's coach. So any any women that if we had been thinking more broadly, uh, who, who could be interesting either as a super coach for Djokovic or for any other player, man or woman? That's interesting. I'd, I, I've never really gone in for, for, for the coach predictions too much uh, besides our conversation last week. But, but I, I don't know what the status is of, of Alina Spitalina's relationship with Justine Hennen. Um, do you know if they're still working together, Carl? I don't. Because she, not only does she seem like someone with a lot to offer any player, male or female, but just her game style keeps coming up as something for for contemporary players to emulate. And sorry to hijack your hijacking, but I was thinking about her a lot. Someone someone tweeted that Halep needs to play more like Hennen, basically, and, and I agree with that pretty strongly. Watching her last couple of matches, it, it really drives home the point that Halep is this weird kind of aggressive counterpuncher, but she's she looks terrified of approaching the net. And She's, she gained so much court position so effectively. There were so many points in the final where she would get to really move herself into no man's land. She would get within a couple steps of the service line and then drop back for the next shot. And it seems like such a, such a mistake for a player to work so hard as she does to hit great shots to earn that position and then give it back over and over again. And I would think that a coach like Kennan might encourage her to take advantage of that, follow it up. Like, I, I don't know whether Halep's so uncomfortable at the net that she could never overcome that, but it seems like e- even a slight improvement in that in that department, just coming forward enough to make players a little bit more uncomfortable or coming forward enough to take some really easy volleys now and then, um, it, it would make matches like the final against Mladenovic more decisive than they were. Like, it would still be a close match. Mladenovic would still be a factor there, but I think... I think it would have been a two-setter and wouldn't have gotten to five all in either set uh, if if Halep had just closed points better. So that's one name that comes to mind, uh, Justine Hennen. I'm I'm not sure about other coaches. Uh, I I'm always surprised by some of the pairings that that do turn out to be effective. Like to to digress again, we just had the news a few days ago that Nick Kyrgios is working with Sebastian Groshan, which is utterly bizarre to me like it, it's tough to imagine a player with a different more different game style from Kyrgios uh working with Kyrgios but as I'm pointing out with with a coach like Hennon maybe helping someone like Halep be play in a slightly different way maybe that's something that's helping Kyrgios um what do you think of that pairing Carl yeah I think with Kyrgios he doesn't so much need somebody to to show him how to do better the things he does well I think he needs someone to help him make decisions on court and maybe off court too and uh so I I I think it it could be a really good pairing I like that he went with someone who isn't you know a former all-time great 
and uh, someone who has a coaching pedigree. Um, I think Halla played some doubles in Madrid, right? And maybe won some matches. So maybe that, maybe her net yeah, play is getting she, better. She made the semifinals. She doesn't play a lot of doubles. And I suspect that the reason she did in Madrid is the Tyriac Romanian connection. She played with another Romanian, Arena Camilla Bagu. Uh, but yeah, she's, she's not hopeless on the doubles court. And, and like a lot of players who seem to shy away from coming to net, she, she doesn't often look bad. Um, I mean, I, I've watched pretty much every Simona Halep match for the last three or four years, and you don't get a lot of data to go off of. But I mean, she's okay. She's she's not comfortable hitting overheads like like quite a few other players. Uh, so she hits a lot of swinging volleys. Uh, but it's it, it's almost like she's afraid of of having to hit that intermediate shot uh, before having a comfortable shot at the net, which which isn't such a big factor in doubles, a transition game, but. I don't know. It's um, it, it seems like a player who's who's reached such heights in the in the game in general should be able to play a competent competent net game and, and incorporate into that into their strategy a little bit more. But it does all come down to comfort, and we don't know just how badly she feels about it. All right. What else should we uh, should we talk about? Well, before we move off the. Women in Madrid. Let's touch on Mladenovic a little bit more. As as you've pointed out, she's she's playing really well this year. Um, she's been in the news quite a bit with her double split from Caroline Garcia, and she has been speaking out quite a bit the last few weeks, both about Sharapova and about Garcia. And Carl, I get the feeling from from other things you've said that that you like it when players are your word candid. Um, aren't afraid to to be a little more honest than the sort of sanitized media media friendly tennis players that we're more familiar with. So what what's your take on that? Do you think she's she's her comments so far a fair game? Absolutely. I, every player is entitled to their opinion about Sharapova, her suspension, wild cards, and Mladenovic has spoken openly about the Garcia split and about her career and her rise in the rankings and how it's compared to other players. And I've just seen a lot of criticism of it as in like, how dare she have strong opinions that might seem insulting to other players, even though they're mostly just stating facts about them. Uh, I, I think it shows just like how much we've gotten used to a pretty bland style of of players responding to questions. I mean, so many press conferences are, yeah, I'm just thinking about the next match. Uh, My opponent played really well. I I have to play really well to win my next match. And this is an individual sport. Why not just tell us what you're thinking? I I guess she plays doubles and maybe this will affect how future partners think about playing with her, but maybe some partners don't mind the honesty. I've actually found that some of the doubles players are some of the most candid, and maybe that's partly because even the best doubles players are lower profile than someone ranked 10 or 20 in singles. But it it seems like, you know, some, some candor without going into downright being mean or being wrong, it can be a really valuable thing in a sport. Uh, certainly it, it can be between coaches and players, between doubles partners. And as fans in media, uh, I think people should appreciate hearing what players think instead of hearing things that they probably don't think at all or ever think about, except when they switch into the mode of these comments are going to be quoted and potentially turned against me. So I, I'm liking it. I think in general, the WTA probably has more interesting 
players in public and more candor than the ATP, and I think that's a benefit to the sport. Uh, you could say it's like an off-court thing and a distraction, but most of our comments are about tennis and about how players are playing and who's playing well. And, and, and I, I'd love to hear more about what players think about those things. Yeah, I would too. And in general, I'm, I'm totally in favor of, of more candor and fewer canned answers, uh, which as you point out, we get so many of, especially from the top men. Like I think Milos Ronich is kind of the, the epitome of everything that's, that's wrong with, with tennis press conferences. He, he's so good at giving this really bland or giving this set of really bland answers that he almost never says anything of interest and plenty of other players are in the same category but I think he's really perfected it in a way that that most people haven't um I think where what the issue is with some of the criticism of Mladenovic is I I feel like she might have crossed a line a little bit and and to me tennis is tennis is a very traditional sport we expect players to be classy, upstanding, I'm not sure if that's quite, those are quite the right words, but we, we hold them to higher standards than I think we hold players in most other sports. And I would love to have more opinions about the, the game on the court, and we can define that pretty broadly, as I'll, I'll say in a moment, but what's tricky about that is the players who are the most candid often tend to to get off that topic a little bit. And it felt like her comments about Caroline Garcia, um, you know, being being controlled by her father, uh, not being as, as, as educated as she is, uh, that seemed to drift a little bit too far from that. I'd be very interested in knowing about what was ha- what the differences were in, you know, their, their playing styles, their doubles philosophies, uh, even just knowing that they did or didn't, hang out off court, whether they consider each other friends, things like that. But when it, when it drifts into, into personal territory, especially negative personal territory, that's where, that's where I start getting a little uncomfortable. And I think that's where a lot of fans don't, uh, don't approve of it. Like the, it's perfectly fine from Ladenovich to have a strong opinion about Sharapova getting wild cards, for instance, but to, to then talk about how Sharapova is a cold person or something like that, that's, where it gets a little iffy for me. Like, Carl, is that, is, is that kind of thing still interesting to you, things that you think players should speak more about? I think there's a distinction here between what do I want to hear more of and does it make me like the person more? I, it certainly didn't make me like Mondanovich more to hear her say that about Garcia, but I still would encourage players to say things like that. I mean, I guess it can come off, it is a fine line, but especially with the doubles partnership, the reasons why players split often aren't anything to do with how good her backhand volley was or how much time she put into coaching. So in in that case, it really did affect tennis potentially if her account was correct. Um, I, I mean, I don't know enough about Garcia and her situation to know like how sensitive that is and how personal it is and how true it is. Um, and I do understand why it would turn some people off. But if, if at least in Ladenovich's account, that's why they split, I think that's good to know instead of, oh, we wanted to play different events or I was focusing more on singles. I mean, I, I guess my point is my preference is I'd rather hear what she thinks is the real reason for something than hear her make up something and give a rationalization that, that we think people would approve of more. Well, that's reasonable. I think... 
fans in general would would default to wanting more information as opposed to less. It's just a question of whether there are there are zones of information like that that we do want to be sanitized a little bit, like some of the more personal issues. Um, but but yeah, she even even if you think she did cross the line, I don't think she crossed the line very far. And it's it's nice to have someone being a little bit more candid than the the typical player press conference. So before we switch over to the men, we do have a lot to talk about with the Madrid men's draw. I wanted to loop back around to some of the things we were talking about with just just ranking the current women in general. And I was able to to run a new set of, of ELO ratings through the Madrid tournament this week. And a couple surprises there, maybe this one isn't a surprise, but the, the first thing that pops out is Simona Halep is creeping almost back up to her her ELO peak. She's within 15 points, which is almost nothing in ELO terms of Johanna Kanta. So besides Serena and Azarenka and Sharapova, uh, all of whose rankings aren't really relevant to their recent games, Halep is basically in a near tie for number one with Kanta in, in terms of ELO. And Mladenovic, on the other hand, I, I need to dig further into the numbers to, to understand this, but even though Mladenovic has had a really solid year, she's still down at number 16 in the ELO ratings. And she's at her career peak, um, more than 100 points behind Kanta. But the thing that surprised me, um, I didn't realize quite how high Svitolina had gotten. Alina Svitolina is, well, she's 7th, but among active players, so behind Serena, Azarenka, Kvitova, and Sharapova's basically old ranking, Svitolina is third behind Kanta and Halep, and she's someone we've only barely mentioned this week, and someone whose game should translate reasonably well to clay, so the numbers would suggest she should be as much of a factor as many of the players we've discussed. And Muguruza, who we also touched on briefly, she's down there with Mladenovic, she's 15th, um, only a single point, half a point, above Mladenovic. So, there's a lot of different, a lot of inputs into how we rate these these women at this point in the season, and they're conflicting, confusing. They're all pretty tightly packed um, around the area where Mugurus and Mladenovic are. There's, I think, five players within about one point of each other. So even ELO, which is a lot more granular than the the official rankings or anyone's eyeball views, um, ELO doesn't really know what to make of it either. So. Carl, do you have any other any other thoughts on the on women in Madrid and Rome before we switch over to the men? Well, just that we've talked so much about Sharapova, we can probably mostly give it a rest. But it's notable that at least right now she's in a tough fight with Christina Mikhail, and Mikhail is not really, I think, anyone's idea of a big threat on clay this year. And you know, watch her go to the semis. Now that I've said it, because I dismissed Bouchard last week. Uh, and the the stadium is not particularly full. In fact, it looks mostly empty. And that's a wild card that could have gone to Schiavone, who's retiring after this year. Italian player, former French Open champ, who is not in the tournament uh, in her last year in her home country. So I I think one of the other wild cards could have gone to Schiavone too. I understand why Sharapova is there. It would be pretty sad if she didn't make it through around in Rome uh, after th- that wild card didn't go to Schiavone. Yeah, that, that is a shame that they couldn't fit Schiavone in there. Um, it, it's also funny that they have this, this wild card playoff, so someone who I'd only marginally heard of, Deborah Chiesa, is on court right now playing Serenko, and 
she is a, I think she's ranked outside the top 300. And it, it, normally I'm in favor of having wildcard playoffs instead of just awarding wildcards to whoever the Federation likes. But in this case, seems like maybe Schiavone would have been a better bet for the tournament than the result of a, 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 a battle between pretty low-ranked not uh, prospects might even be too strong. I'm not sure if she has if she's considered to be much of a prospect. So, lots of ways they could have gotten her in the tournament, and I, it is a shame that she's not there at her home tournament in her retirement year. So, Carl, let's talk about the men. The big match this this last week on paper was the semifinal. Uh, Nadal and Djokovic were in the same half. They both lived up to it, uh, although Djokovic only kind of half lived up to it. He, he mostly just failed to die since he, he got past Kina Shikori, who, um, who withdrew in the quarterfinal. So we got the Nadal-Djokovic match we've been waiting for and, and boosting on this podcast for the last few weeks. And it was a bit of a dud. Djokovic showed some signs of, of, of top-level play, but it was pretty much one-way traffic for Rafael Nadal. But on the other hand, Nadal did not get through the tournament unchallenged. She played two very tight matches, one in the quarterfinal with the Fan and one in the final against Dominic Thiem. So let's start with the that match with Gofan, Carl. Um, Wait, let's not skip past the Fonini match. Right. I forgot about the Fonini match. Well, let's start with the Fonini match. Carl, tell, tell us about... Tell us, tell us what you can about the, these, these matches that actually gave Rafa a bit of a challenge. Sure. Well, Fonini has been giving Rafa quite a bit of challenge the last few years. I think beating him twice on clay and once at the U.S. Open. And he, he just matches up really well with him and seems, seems to relish the top spin that Nadal is giving him and be able to hit the ball high on both sides. Uh, you know, really has a good net game. So he can he can close Nadal out earlier in points, and and he just seems to bedevil Nadal. It was a really tricky first match for Rafa, and he he could have lost it in straights. I mean, Fonini won the second set and really could have and maybe should have won the first set. Uh, Rafa was better in the third for sure, and then once he got through it, it was definitely smoother. But uh, Goffin played a very good first set and got to a tie break, even though. He was barely touching Rafa's serve, and 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 um, Nadal had some chances on Goffin's. And then the second set, Nadal won it more handily. But they played in the seventh game, and it was wasn't a particularly consequential game because Nadal was already up a break. Goffin serving a two four, just one of the best games I've ever seen. I mean, on clay especially, almost every point ended with a winner. Many, maybe most of them, spectacular ones. Both guys hitting great shots, only to see the other one answer it with a better one. And I, I, I've been really impressed with Goffin, who, as we're speaking, is in a third set in his first match against Bellucci in Rome. But in general, this year on clay and hard courts, he's he's really been a threat everywhere. The result in the in the Rafa match was such a typical one for him, where he does well to get to a match against a top player, plays honorably, but loses. So he still doesn't have too many breakthrough wins against the very best players. But he seems to be more consistently getting to them. Uh, he had that match against Nadal in Monte Carlo where he uh, was leading by a break, got a bad call, and then basically fell apart. And then Dominique Team played r- really well in the final. It was straight sets. It, it it probably won't go down as one of the best matches of the year because of it, but it might be the one of the best straight set matches. 
Uh, team saved a number of match points in the last two games. He um, had, you know, the, the first set was it was a very close tiebreaker. He was holding serve as easily as Nadal. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, it, it continued, the main story continued to be Nadal unbeaten on clay this year, looking dominant, the, the clear French Open favorite, a remarkable revival, sort, sort of presaged by a great start to the year on hard courts. But he is um, not unchallenged. Well, it's interesting you, you emphasize that Fanini match because Nadal has now won 15 straight matches on clay, and most of them haven't even been close, including the Djokovic match, which I'll say more about in a moment. But the, the one that was closest, just in terms of, of raw numbers of points, is that Fanini match. Uh, Nadal won 51.5% of the points against Fanini, which is usually guarantees you a win, but it's possible to lose winning 51.5%. But he, after 52.7% against team, everything else is is quite a bit higher. Like actually, after team, the the closest someone has come is Diego Schwartzman back in Monte Carlo, who won 53.4%. But more common is Nadal won 53.4. Right. I guess, yes, Nadal won 52.4. But more common for Nadal is winning like a 57, 58% margin, which is, which is pretty dominant. It's not, it's, it's not overwhelming, but it's always going to get you the win. So it, it's interesting that, that Fanini is the one guy who's come closest to, to vanquishing the King of Clay. And as promised, I have to say that Djokovic match was, was really a letdown. Um, Djokovic should be the guy who can threaten Nadal on clay. Obviously, he's won several matches. had won several matches in a row. Seven, I think, against Nadal. Seven matches, 15 sets? 15 sets in a row against Nadal. And several of those were on clay. Um, Better still think that Djokovic is the number two favorite on clay going into Roland Garros. But after watching that match, I have a hard time seeing it. Nadal just outplayed him in in every category um there wasn't any one specific thing i felt that djokovic was unable to do he just was a little more erratic he he wasn't able to recover from defensive positions the way that we are accustomed to seeing djokovic do i don't even think nadal was playing really well i think it's i didn't get to watch as much of the gofana team matches but i wouldn't be surprised if Nadal was actually playing better in the quarterfinals and final than he was against Djokovic because he really didn't need to. We saw some some absolute moments of magic. There was one backhand passing shot in particular, I believe, in the second set that was just unreal. But but on, in general, it didn't take an all-time great to beat Djokovic in Madrid. And I have a hard time seeing Djokovic making much of a run and roll in Garros. Those feel like famous last words, and of course, now that I've said that, he's going to go... He's going to go win the French Open, but I really don't see it. And I don't want to read too much into just a a tally of total points won, but the fact that so many players have been more competitive on clay with Nadal than he has, including Team and Goffin and Fanini and Schwartzman and Kyle Edmund, of all people, uh, makes me think that Djokovic just, just isn't there. And the part of me that wants to trust the algorithm is expecting him to bounce back any day. But after watching that match, I don't really see it. Uh, Carl, where do you come down on that? Do you, do you still think that we're just a couple of matches away from seeing Djokovic back at his former level? 
I yeah I I don't think we are, but I also still see him as the second favorite at the French. I mean I. We still have another tournament here in Rome. He didn't crash out of Monte Carlo or Madrid. So, you know, sometimes I think we penalize players who get to a match not at their best and then lose it handily more than the guys who didn't even get there. Like Andy Murray, to me, has been worse on clay so far than than Djokovic, but be, because he hasn't played either of the other guys, it hasn't been as high profile. Well, we're penalizing him by not even mentioning him this week. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I, I, I lessened that penalty. Um, and I, I also keep coming back to the format of the Grand Slam. I mean, I, you can, I think, sometimes overstate how different it is, but it matters a lot to me that, for Djokovic in particular, that there's the week off before it happens, there's a day off between matches for, for the most part, that especially in the early rounds you're getting typically, or at least you can get, weaker opponents than you get at a Masters, and it's best of five where he is so tough, um, or at least was until Wimbledon last year. And I, I think all of those could could help. Again, I think that he has a really good chance to play his way into shape at that tournament, even if he doesn't in Rome. Now, there are lurking threats who are not going to be seated or, or not going to be seated high, who could certainly derail him, and also there are players we never would have expected to derail him who have in the last 10 months or so. But I, I'm not yet quite ready to count him out, although I agree that if we were just looking at the clay season so far this year, it would probably be Team or Gofan who's who's next best to Nadal. And which is such a crazy thing to, to even bring up, the idea that Davin Gofan is now even in a conversation as number two on clay to Rafael Nadal. I mean, I, I love Goffin and I've been a fan of his for, for the last few years now, but, but I, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I believe that we've long seen him as someone who can, can beat all the guys he's supposed to beat, but isn't really a threat against anyone else, but he has played his way into the conversation. Um, Obviously, beating Djokovic in Monte Carlo, and then playing playing this much better this past week against Nadal than he did his his previous time. So it it is it is interesting. Um, since since we have brought up Andy Murray's name, it seems like everything we're saying about Djokovic goes goes double for Andy Murray. Do you think there there's any hope for him, Carl? I think the the best thing he is going for him is he has such a big lead in the rankings that he's going to keep holding on to it probably at least until the start of Wimbledon, and maybe maybe even the playing field in recent years of number of times we express wonder at how someone could be number one in the ATP as we have done so many times in the WTA. Although, of course, Kerber is increasing that number for WTA many weeks. Yeah, I I just didn't, haven't seen much from Marianne Clay or really at all this season, except maybe Dubai and Doha getting to the final that, that makes him look like a top 10 player, let alone number one. It's, you know, he lost in straight sets to lucky loser Borna Chorich, and they were both six, three sets. And, you know, he, he didn't even, Chorich didn't even need to like play out of his mind to win that match. And yeah, I just don't see um, anything from Murray Again, I wouldn't be surprised if at a Grand Slam where he's been so much tougher, uh, where he's made the semis and final the last two years and both times taken sets off Djokovic, if he, if he again, you know, like can make his, well, making a seed would win it, but if he could, you know, make a quarterfinal and maybe by then be playing better. But 
I, I would be much more surprised to see that than to see Djokovic make a run. And interestingly enough, this week, Murray's first opponent in the second round will be Fabio Fanini at his home tournament in Italy. So, And, and those two played on clay in Italy in Davis Cup a few years ago, and that was when Murray was playing much better in general. And Fanini just dominated that match. It's one of the best played matches by Fonini I've ever seen, which may sound like faint praise, except Fonini at his best is on clay, I think, a top five or at least a top ten player. Well, and yeah, it's not faint praise at all. We've we've seen Fanini win a number of big matches. I mean, he he beat Nadal at the U.S. Open. Like the, the average level, Fanini is a bit of a punchline at this point. But but I totally agree. Fanini at his best is is in the conversation as as certainly one of the top ten players in the game. It's just unfortunate we don't see much more than that. Um, so yeah, it could be another very early exit for Andy Murray. Then um, the question just will remain whether he can take advantage of the best-of-five format. Uh, a, a, one of the few maybe redeeming factors of Andy Murray's season is that he had the he had the loss and then a close win against Albert Ramos, who seemed to be having a really strong clay season, both by virtue of his success against Murray and also making that Monte Carlo final. But Albert Ramos also had a bit of a disappointment yesterday. He lost to John Isner, who's... We can we can talk about John Isner on clay, but not someone you normally think of as a big threat on the surface. Um, so e- even that, in, in a second degree sort of way, weakens Murray's case a little bit. If if Murray is just barely getting past someone who can't even beat John Isner on clay, then there seems to be even more to worry about. So, Carl, is there, what else in the in the men's draw do you think we should be looking at this upcoming week in Rome? Well, I, I want to give Isner a little credit, which which relates to the next thing that I want wanted to talk about in, in the men's draw. You know, he he's never made a really deep run in, on European clay at a big tournament that that I can think of. But in individual matches, he's certainly dangerous. He took Nadal to five in the first round at the French Open in I think 2011, and he beat Federer in a kind of weird indoor clay court in Davis Cup in 2012. I'm reaching kind of distantly in the past, I realize, but he, on any surface, will not have a lot of trouble holding serve. And much like Karlovich on clay, another combination that doesn't sound that promising, that makes him dangerous in any match. Um, and, you know, that that brings up the, the point I was going to get to, which is, hey, we have Americans now playing on clay in the men's draw, other than Ryan Harrison. And, and I guess Jack Sock showed up in Madrid. But a, a number of the Americans are, are starting their clay season in earnest pretty much right at the end of the clay season. And it's nice to see Sam Querrey got a good win over Lucas Puy earlier today. So maybe we'll see some of them, despite not giving themselves much of a chance to play into, into form on clay, do so. I, I don't really expect anyone any of the American men to threaten at the French Open, but maybe some will make the third round or the fourth round, which has been better than recent results. And, and that's kind of where American men's tennis is right now. It's it's not, there is no dominant player. There's no one, I think, particularly close to the top 10, although Jack Sock maybe could get there this year. But there there are a number of players playing well in the top 100. And I saw the stat that the American men cumulatively have gotten to 100 wins faster this year than they have in any year since 2009, and that's even while skipping a few of the recent tournaments. So uh, that's that's definitely something I'm I'm watching for in Rome. What are you looking for? 
Well, since you mentioned Sock, I have to highlight what is sort of the ultimate the ultimate Jeff Sackman first rounder, which is Jack Sock against Diego Schwartzman. Uh, and Carl, you might be one of only about three people on earth who remember this, but I wrote a few articles several years ago about basically laying out my case against against wild cards and how how wild cards are are bad for tennis. And we don't need to belabor this point since we discussed it at, at length a few weeks ago on the podcast. But I used Sock and Schwartzman as examples against each other because at at the time that I that I wrote it or shortly before that they had been pretty similar similarly placed in the rankings they're are about the same age they're similar in another way that they both have pretty strong surface preferences obviously Schwartzman is a, a clay specialist and Sock is a hardcore guy so in a lot of ways they they provided the sort of approximate natural experiment but the way in which they differ that gave us the experiment is that Sock just got wild card after wild card after wild card as promising young Americans tend to do. Now Sock got some of them because he won the US Open Juniors, which even for a non-American that would get you some opportunities. Schwartzman never did anything really in that category. But at the same time, Sock did get all these benefits. He probably would have gotten even more if he needed them. And now a few years later, both of them are climbing the rankings. Uh, Sock of course, is quite a bit higher. He's up to number 15 now. Schwartzman has been steadily climbing the rankings as well. We talked about him in the last couple episodes of the podcast. He's in the top 40. Um, so it, 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 it's certainly defensible that to say that Sock is a better player, like independent of the wild cards, independent of any structural advantages he's gotten. But it is, it is interesting to, to think about how their trajectories would have been different, how much harder Sock would have had to work to get where he is now if he didn't have the U.S. Open wild card. So those other advantages that someone like Schwartzman never has. So this match, which I'm not sure whether it's today or tomorrow, um, it's not going to settle, settle the debate at all because I think most people probably expect Schwartzman to take advantage of the surface and win here. But to me, this is, is a bigger match than just a, a sort of anonymous first rounder since it does represent so much more than that. And I, I'm, I'm really, really rooting for Diego here. Um, which which is a reminder that both of us, while we're very interested in American tennis and probably on balance want to see it do well, we're not going to just by default root for the American player. And we have our favorites for, from lots of countries. And that's one of the things I love about the sport is that it's not the Olympics, that you, you can you can find players you love from, from anywhere and, and support them. Yeah, absolutely. It is one jarring thing about watching sports outside of the U.S. is that in, in certainly there's a lot of, of very patriotic American fans, and I don't want to, to underestimate that, but in, in Europe, the, the reflex is so much more just in favor of, of cheering for, for the hometown heroes, really regardless of anything else, which is, has always been kind of foreign to me. Like I, I, at least in the last generation or so, I haven't been much of a fan of, of American tennis because we have so many... Um, so many one-dimensional players like the the Sox and and John Isner's and Sam Querys that it doesn't seem like for all for all the quality players there are there's not a lot of really there's not much variety so I I tend to gravitate towards non-American players but uh, but I think in 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 other countries without as much of a presence uh, people tend to root for the hometown heroes regardless whether they would really like them for any other reason or not. Uh, one thing I do like about Jack Sock is the fact that he is such a good doubles player. And Carl, you, 
you briefly mentioned this. He he's playing doubles again this week with John Isner. He doesn't have a regular partner these days, but we talked a few weeks ago that he reached the final back in Miami with Nicholas Monroe. He played with Nick Kyrgios last week. He ended up having to withdraw because of a Kyrgios injury. But Sock is still, by ELO, still the number one doubles player by a, a pretty big distance. Um, Sock and Kyrgios beat Roger Takao. They beat Klaus and Rahm. They beat the Bryan brothers in a really close quarterfinal. So, if anything, Sock is just is confirming this case that he's one of the best, if not the best, doubles players on the men's tour. So even if he's not committing to being a full-time doubles guy, it's nice to see him him entering every week and, and building that resume even more. Yeah, and I think it's it's one way that he is debunking your your claim just now that he's one-dimensional. I mean, he, he's he's two-dimensional he's he's a great doubles player and and some of that is just because his forehand is so dangerous but some of it is because he's he's pretty good at the net and has has some pretty good instincts and tactics uh one thing i wanted to mention about him and also schwartzman is like many of the younger players and um they're both uh 24 they're actually almost exactly the same age so they really are a, a good story in terms of their their different tracks uh, from from the same age. Uh, they're both higher in the rankings than they are. They're, they're higher in the race, which is the number of ranking points so far this year, than they are in the 52-week rankings. And, you know, I said Sock could get in the top 10. He's already number nine in the race. And, you know, numbers three and four after Nadal and a guy we haven't talked about much recently because he hasn't been playing much recently, Federer, after those two, it's team and golf fan. The, the two younger players I mentioned could be the second best on clay right now. And actually, if you look in the top 10, there are five players in the ATP who are born 1989 or later, which is sounds like an arbitrary distinction, but that is the cohort of players who have never won a title at the master's level or above, even though the oldest of them are now uh, 28. And, you know, I think a few years ago, I would have thought Raonic or, or Nishikori, both guys you mentioned earlier, would, would be the most likely to do it. Maybe also Dimitrov. Of those three, it's only Dimitrov who's in that top 10 group in the race so far this year. You also have Karenio Busta. And then, you know, in the next, in the next set, you have uh, Zverev, Pui, uh, Nishikori is there, Kyrgios, Raonic, all in the top 20 in the race. So, I, I I have to think it's a matter of time that one of these guys finally breaks through and wins a big title, and maybe it'll be this week in Rome. And it's it's certainly well overdue, although as a group, if not for individuals, I mean, I, I shouldn't hold it too much against the ones who are 21 or 22, but for the ones who are 25 or 26, it certainly feels overdue. But it, it would be nice to finally end that, that string of tweets I've been sending after each each time the last one of them falls. Uh, by the way, speaking of happy birthday, Andy Murray, and a week from today will be happy birthday, Novak Djokovic. They'll both enter their thirties and, you know, they, part of what has allowed these younger players to rise this year is that those two have been falling off and maybe they are feeling the effects of aging. Maybe we've taken for granted that Federer can win the Australian open at 35 and that Nadal at almost 31 can be the favorite at the French Open and, and number one in the race, and that Vavrinka at the U.S. Open last year at 31 can, can win. Uh, maybe Murray and Djokovic are, are just falling off because they're old by traditional tennis standards and the young guys are breaking through. Yeah, and, and as, 
as you point out there, by traditional standards, they they would be people you'd start, they're at at an age where you would start talking about their potential retirement. And it is strange to think that the the chink in the armor of the big four is Djokovic and Murray falling off instead of Federer and Nadal falling off because we've seen this steady improvement of Djokovic and Murray cutting into Nadal's and Federer's achievements for so long. Nadal and Federer were were at the top of the game before we were talking about Murray or Djokovic too much. But now, of course, you have Federer and Nadal back at the top, at least in, in, by some measurements, and Murray and Djokovic are the non-factors. So it, it could work out that way. It could be that Federer has a less physically demanding game. Nadal has taken so much time off over the years from from injury and just more conservative scheduling. So it could be that Djokovic and, and Murray are feeling the effects of age and the way they play more than Federer and Nadal do. Or, sorry, no, yeah, before, more than Federer and Nadal do. So it, it'll be interesting to see. It, again, this all is all is based on a relatively small sample. It, it could be that you know, Murray and Murray's going to win Wimbledon and Djokovic is going to win the U.S. Open, and we'll be talking about this in a totally different way in a few months. This first few months of the season will be just a, a blip in some longer-term trends. But with every week that passes, that becomes less and less likely. And while we're talking about players shifting towards retirement, Carl, um, we just found out today before we started recording that Juan Monaco has retired. Not quite as big a name as, as the big four we're discussing, but I think he's definitely worthy of a mention, especially in the context of, of players in their early 30s dropping off the radar. So, Carl, what, what's, how will you remember Juan Monaco and his role in, in men's tennis? I think he's a, a classic case of the kind of cliche of got the most out of out of their game and their body that they could have. He he's he's the kind of player who in their the summary of their career the headline will be former top 10 player because they did very well to get there and barely got there and didn't stay long, but you can never take that away from them. And he when he was in his prime I think a few years ago and, and got to the top 10 Certainly on clay, he was he was a threat. I think he was he had a lot in common with David Ferrer and was kind of a a poor man's Ferrer, which at the time was was a big compliment. Um, he didn't have too many wins over the very best players, but he could fight them very hard, especially on clay, and would would run for every ball. and um, And I think the sport will miss him. Yeah, I think having guys like that in the sport is definitely a benefit. And as you point out, I, I will always remember his, his run to the top 10. I remember a, a few months before he finally broke in when when he was he was climbing the rankings. And I think he, he won one tournament. He, he, he gained quite a bit of points and got close. And in, in a press conference, he, he was asked what it would mean to him to, to break into the top 10 or something like that. And I'm just remembering this approximately. But he just sounded he sounded like it would be... It, it would be the the climax of his life. Like it, it would it would mean so much to him in a, in a way that I've never really heard a player a, a player talk about an achievement like the top ten. And after I heard that, you couldn't help but but root for the guy. Um, and of course, he did make it. I mean, he, he got I I think he got a particularly weak draw at the at the Hamburg five hundred. So if you look at it analytically, um, it's it's not as strong as maybe some other players who have reached the top ten, but like you say, he made it. You can't take that away from him. Uh, whether he's whether he peaked at number ten or number eight or number thirteen, still a, a really impressive player and and has a lot to be proud of in his career and really made the sport better by being there. 
So, so we will we will miss him. Hopefully, we'll have a, a steady stream of players like like my fave Diego Schwartzman who will who will fill that role and hopefully climb up a little higher in the rankings as well. Um, Carl, as our time is running out here, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on this week? Um, looking ahead to Rome on the men's side. Uh, I think Nishikori is someone to watch. He He's had so many withdrawals in his career. You mentioned the one in his quarterfinal against Djokovic in Madrid. He's back in Rome at his best on clay. He is one of the best players on clay, but I, I, I just don't know what we're going to see from him the rest of the season or really the rest of his career. Like, Will he just be the injury-cursed player who, who might have been number one, might have been a Grand Slam champ? I sure hope that's not the case because – at his best, he's he's really a pleasure to watch. Um, and then you know, Nadal and Djokovic again are are on course for that potential semifinal, and it might it might not happen this week. But it's a reminder that also the rankings are not yet going to really make a lot of sense, uh, even by the French Open. And so so there could be some some weird early matchups, relatively early matchups there too. Uh, Nadal will be in the in the top. Um, he'll he'll he, he's not going to break into the top two, I'm pretty sure by the um, by the French Open. So there is that potential for him to get Djokovic in the semis again. And then Federer looks like he's going to be uh, the fifth seed at the French Open if he does go ahead and play it as he said he will. So that could create some awkward quarterfinals as well. So yeah, um, it's it's another. It's another week to try to make some sense of a men's game where the rankings don't really seem to reflect what is happening. Yeah, there is a lot to watch for. On, uh, since you mentioned Nishikori, I, I, I don't think we should expect too much from him this week since he said after the Djokovic withdrawal that that he, he wasn't even sure whether he would play. It felt like he was kind of waiting to see what his draw looked like, and that still feels to me like he's he's not nowhere close to 100%. So... So it would be a big surprise to me to see him go deep this week. But as you say, he's he's a major threat on clay, and it, it seems like if he did get healthy, he could certainly be a player to challenge Nadal or anybody else uh, at the French Open. So I think that wraps things up for this week. Let Thank me just you. give a quick update since it finished just <laughs> in time. GoFan survived that Bellucci match that I mentioned, 6-4 in the third, and Sharapova is pulling away from Mikhail up a set and a break. So it looks like... We'll probably see both of them continue in Rome. And Deborah Chiesa, the the unheralded Italian wildcard, is also up a break on Serenko. So all the big news here from the Tennis Abstract podcast. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Carl, thank you for joining me as always. Thanks, Jeff. And we will see you next week.